0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ Podcast. I'm Simon Carley, I'm one of the associate editors on the journal, and today I'm going to be taking you through the primary survey, our regular roundup of what's interesting in the journal this month. Now, I'm not going to have time to go through everything, so there's more in the journal, so don't just rely on what I'm saying now. Go out there, read the journal, get interested, and answer back, you know, contact us on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever, you know, talk to us, let us know how we're doing. Um, but this month it's done by Caroline Leach, um, one of the other associate editors She's an emergency physician and pre-hospital physician based in Coventry in the UK I'm um, a huge inspiration to so many people. I was lucky enough to work with Caroline when she worked with me in Manchester many, many years ago. I can tell you now she's been brilliant from whenever she started medicine. And interestingly, you may have seen her if you're in the UK because she actually took over the NHS Twitter account in July, describing the day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute experiences of being an emergency medicine, pre-hospitalist, parent, just wonderful person. So you may know the name already. But anyway, back to August 2019, what has Caroline picked out for us? Well, the first one she's picked out is a paper on the diagnostic uncertainty and physician experience, titled The Impact of Emergency Physician Experience on Decision-Making in Patients with Suspected Community-Acquired Pneumonia and Undergoing Systematic Thoracic CT Scan. So, an interesting paper. I'm always very interested in decision-making. I think it's a core of what we do in emergency medicine. So this is the sort of thing which I kind of like. So we know we commonly use chest x-ray to diagnose community-acquired pneumonias, commonly referred to as CAPs, or in my part of the world anyway. Um, And we do that a lot in the ED. And back in 2015, the ESCAPE study found that in patients without parenchymal infiltrates on chest x-ray, routine thoracic CT scan was positive for CAP in 33% of patients And in those that had a positive chest x-ray, CT scanner excluded CAP in 29.8%. Wow. That is not what I expected. That's quite big numbers, really. So that really challenges a lot of what our customer practices, which is based around the use of the chest x-ray. So in this month's paper um, published, and it's actually one of the editor's choice, so you can get in there and read it for free, the authors have gone on to assess the impact of early CT thorax on the diagnostic certainty of emergency physicians. And not surprisingly really, the clinician's diagnosis was strongly influenced by the radiology report. What is more interesting is that the diagnosis and treatment plan were more likely to be changed by less experienced physicians, those with less than 10 years experience, not because they had a worse CT classification, but to a more accurate diagnosis as assessed by an independent adjudication committee. So the authors hypothesize that this may be due to influence by a more senior reporter, appreciation of technology and clinical practice, or better acceptance of a diagnostic test, which differs from normal practice. And I think that's really interesting. It, it sort of demonstrates that how we get information, who gives us the information, and how novel the information is around diagnostic testing actually influences us, which you know we like to think it doesn't, but you know what? It does. So if you're interested in diagnostics and decision-making, have a look at that, particularly around you know, community-acquired pneumonia diagnosis. So next we go on to looking at the pre-hospital termination of resuscitation rules, a meta-analysis paper on the accuracy of termination of resuscitation rules for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So, in the UK, the majority of paramedics are required to continue active resuscitation in adult medical cardiac arrest patients unless there's a recorded asystole of 20 minutes of resuscitation, a couple of special circumstances exclusion, but that's for the most part. And... In some cases, the patient is in PA or fine VF for a prolonged period and the crew moved the patient to hospital where the emergency physician can decree futility, and you know, I guess we've all done that, um, and cease resuscitation. CPR, we know, is difficult in a moving air vehicle and it carries significant risks for the ambulance staff during blue light transfers. And I think there was a quite a tragic case recently in the UK where um, there was a very, very bad outcome from doing exactly that. Conveying patients with no chance of return of... Spontaneous circulation increases the workload of the ED, and it may cause additional distress or inappropriate hope to relatives. And I guess, again, I've seen that. So in this month's EMJ, Ebel and colleagues have reviewed the accuracy of nine termination of resuscitation rules, or TORs, in a systematic review of the published literature. And what they found is that the BLS tour had the best accuracy in that if there was no ROSC prior to transport, no defibrillation attempted prior to transport, and the rest was not witnessed by Anglin staff, Pretty futile. So the European Resuscitation Council tour was also promising, but it's only been evaluated in one study. So the, the evidence out there isn't isn't good. But there is certainly a constellation of uh, signs and symptoms and history that suggest that the outcome of cardiac arrest or the chance of getting ROSC is so small that you would not necessarily want to balance that against the risks of transporting that patient to hospital. And it's risk for everybody: risk for the patient, risk for the family, risk for the um, emergency services as well. Then we go on to something a little bit odd, um, which is communication in a respirator, looking at a study looking at the first responder communication in CBRN environments, the FERCOM CBRN study. And I have to admit, I've spent quite a lot of time in CBRN type stuff in the past, and it's pretty unpleasant and it's pretty difficult to know what's going on. Communication is really difficult, partly because you've got none of the, or very few of the non verbal cues, because often you can't see a great deal of what's going on. Although the new suits that we use in the UK in hospital are slightly better than the old military style respirators, which you're probably familiar with the TV, and, and if you've been in the military, you're probably more familiar from that. So, this is a really interesting study. Imagine 37 anesthetists wearing six different full face respirators and voice projection units reading a medical script. Couldn't make it up, really. So, this FERCOM CBRN study assessed the speech intelligibility and loudness of six different full face respirators and voice projection units. These might be necessary for first responders to use in the event of a CBRN, or chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear incident. And the authors conclude that there is a significant difference in the clarity of communication between products, And that's likely to be magnified quite a lot in real life settings. So have a look at that and then compare it to the devices you've got in your department and see if there's a significant change. And they found that the Avon C50 was the preferred model amongst the tested respirators. Next, Caroline's picked out a paper around public health. And if you've been listening to the podcast for some time, you'll know that public health is something, I think, which the emergency department should be heavily involved in. This is slightly different to the usual things we've talked about in the past around patient one-to-one communications, but it's about looking at the potential added value of the new emergency care data set to ED-based public health surveillance in England. And this is an initial concept analysis by Morby and colleagues. So we know that emergency department syndronic surveillance is essential for the identification of public health threats, and it's currently done on a sentinel regional basis in England. This proof of concept study assessed the potential outcomes of increasing the surveillance to all national emergency departments using England as an example, so effectively increasing the population that we'd be looking at by a factor of six. So public health incidents of poor air quality, um, outbreaks of things like cryptosporidium, uh, an influenza pandemic, or a heatwave in England were simulated. And they were assessed to see whether the preset alarm threshold was reached based on historical data. And essentially what they've looked at and found is that the Sentinel national surveillance models were compared. The study found that national ED surveillance would detect smaller incidents and provide earlier warning of outbreaks. But the downside would be an increase in the rate of false alarm requiring investigation. So the usual thing that if you increase the sensitivity, you reduce the specificity. I think, I don't know. But I suspect that now they've got ability to do that with the data sets, they probably will. But we're going to have to then think about how we manage that data. But clearly, with the threats that are around um, in the world at the moment, it's probably a good idea to get more information coming in. So next we go to a paper which... uh, Back to capillary refill, we've had a number of papers around capillary refill over the years. And this is um, man versus machine, a comparison of naked eye estimation and quantified capillary refill. This is really interesting. Capillary refill, you know, press for five seconds, let off for two and detect whether or not the uh, blood flow comes back. And that's a, a measure of whether it's normal or not. So you should get the blood flowing back within two seconds. And it's commonly taught, particularly in pediatrics, that this is a measure of tissue perfusion. And it can be used as a dynamic marker of a resuscitation. I guess probably all of us have either done it or seen it or, or been taught it. So we know that it's widely taught in paediatric emergency medicine for assessment of the circulation. But the reproducibility and the reliability has been questioned in the past. And I think in papers in the journal, I think by Ian McConaughey actually. Anyway, this Swedish study asked doctors, nurses and secretaries, because they wanted a lay group, to watch a set of videos in random order and provide a an estimate of the capillary refill time that was then compared with polarization spectroscopy values as the gold standard so basically getting a machine to do it so the naked eye estimations were always reporting whole seconds rather than half because that's what you do isn't it you treat it as a categorical variable it's one second nobody ever says it was like 2.2 seconds or if they do you look at them weird and then inter-observer vari- agreement between the clinical staff was pretty poor if you know your cappers that's a rubbish capital by the way. And the second estimations of repeated videos were also highly variable, so inter and intra observer variability. So of note there was no obvious differences between the clinical staff and the lay secretaries in precision of their assessments. Good, secretary's doing great. And it does beg the question of whether we should be using this in a more quantitative method um, rather than by naked eye assessment. And I guess that's a question about how do you use this in practice. Do you use it in a very precise way or are you looking for trends? Or are you looking for big changes? And that, I guess, depends on the clinical situation. But what comes out of this for me is that's probably not a terribly reliable test, which is in keeping with previous data. Caroline has then picked out another paper on analgesia for acute minor injuries. This is a paper looking at paracetamol versus other analgesias in adult patients with minor musculoskeletal injuries. And as a systematic review. And you can have a look at that against paracetamol looking against anti-inflammatory agents such as brufin, diclofenac, indomethacin. And the conclusion really is that paracetamol is really as effective as an NSAID or a combination of those analgesics at reducing pain within the first 24 hours. But if you look carefully in the study, some of the studies have actually used pretty low doses of paracetamol compared to the standard adult dose. And I think that questions some of the evidence and uh, Caroline's mentions that he thinks the overall evidence here is poor. So I don't know what you do, or whether you use single um, agents or whether you use combination agents. I'm, I'm a bit of a fan of combination analgesia, really, but I'm also a fan of making sure that people get the appropriate dose, um, particularly in children. So weigh them. Going back to previous podcasts, weigh the children, make sure they get the right thing. Although this, this measure announced was actually in adults. So have a think about that and have a think about your prescribing policies. In my department, we don't tend to give out a lot of simple analgesia anymore because it's, it's advised to for the patients to go and buy their own. But again, it's still going to be part of that conversation. And then lastly, Caroline's brought out another theoretical paper looking at the bias in diagnostic studies. So this is a paper looking at diagnostic tests and looking at the interpretation and the verifying the index test. So Caroline, like me, she's a bit geeky, and we both really enjoyed reading this article on how to recognize workup bias and disease verification bias to critically appraise a diagnostic study. So this is actually part two. So you need to go back to last month, go back to July and read part one um, and have a look at that first, which describes how bias occurs in patient selection and the STARD guidelines, if you're familiar with those, the standards for reporting of diagnostic accuracy studies. So if you're interested in diagnostics and you should be an emergency physician, that's what we do, then have a look at these and it'll make you much better at reading the papers. So that was August. As I said, there's more in the journal than I've been able to go to today. Um, think about coming to join us in Gateshead later this year at the annual scientific conference. Keep reading the journal, keep in touch, keep letting us know how we're getting on and have a great summer.